Hello and welcome to the European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. Broadcasting from Portugal, I am David and I am joined by Andreas, tuning in from Denmark. If you're a regular listener of EUVC, you already know that we're doing a two-part episode with William McKillen, founding partner of Frontline Ventures. In our previous episode, we got to know a bit about William and discuss Frontline's investment thesis and how they support founders entering the US. If you haven't heard our previous episode, I strongly recommend you go back and listen to it before this one. That's right, David. And for the second part of this episode, we're going to focus on firm building, specifically how William built Frontline and took it from an Irish-focused firm to a firm that's globally ambitious, investing in B2B companies on both sides of the Atlantic. Andreas, before you go there, you know that while I'd love to just dive into that discussion, I still want to make sure we kick it off as usual. So getting to know a little bit more about the personal side of William. And we're actually in luck because William... I dare to say, seems to be an endless source of fun. I hope you don't get me wrong, William, with that. Welcome back to the UVC, and I'll kick it off with two words and leave it completely up to you. And the words are odd costumes. Thank you very much for having me back, guys. I think you just are asking me back again, so you can ask me about the odd costumes. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure if the rest of the content is going to be necessary, but for anyone who's listening, you know, we we did a prep call, and I, I mentioned to the two guys that I love to dress up and I love to make my own costumes, and I think that they uh, thoroughly enjoyed me sending some of the images of what I've dressed up at. But I have always, since I've been a teenager, loved dressing up and loved doing costumes, and. I, And I love to make my own costumes. I, again, I, if you were listening to the last podcast, I, you realize I also really like to challenge myself. And I like the idea that I don't think I'm naturally that creative a person, but I like setting myself a challenge of how would I dress up as this? And then I try and think of particularly obscure things to dress up as. And I think the guys are probably going to share an example or two on social media. But but I mean, I've dressed up as a, a like a porta potty or a porta loo, where it's like literally the full thing around me. I mean, it was heavy enough to carry around in what I built. I've dressed up as Lady Gaga, uh, sorry, uh, Miley Cyrus, excuse me, on the wrecking ball. And that had the full wrecking ball with it. You know, I've dressed up as a giant mouse caught in a giant mouse trap. I've dressed up as a Van Gogh painting with you know, the full painting and frame and everything around me. Um, I, I really enjoy making costumes and it, it's something that has nothing to do with venture capital whatsoever, but it's definitely something that I enjoy doing. Uh, and uh, any of my friends who follow me on, on social media probably are well aware of it at this point. Yeah, once you had said this the first time we talked, I hurried into your LinkedIn and try and see if I could find it. I couldn't. So of course, this is on Instagram, guys. We'll put the link in there and you'll find William from the personal side on his uh, on his uh, Instagram profile. Although, you know, it's funny. I think I did actually share when I dressed up as the porta potty. I think that did get shared on LinkedIn uh, by not just me, but by the front line. The team were even proud of that one. So, uh. All right. And it is uh, it is a sight to remember. So uh, I, I understand why they did that. Um, now, William, uh, let's begin our chat on firm building. And I want to start right at the beginning, uh, the raising of the fund. When we first met, you shared with us a pretty good overview of how you see the funding environment in Europe compared to the US. I'd love for you just to recap that overview because I, I really thought it insightful. Yeah, and I think what we talked about was when we started Frontline, I was really blown away by actually how difficult it was to raise a fund. You know, obviously it's difficult to raise money as an entrepreneur, but it's really painful and difficult. You know, the one the one good thing most entrepreneurs in Europe should kind of sleep happy about is that, you know, the average time to raise a first fund in Europe is close to two years. So, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs will complain about how it's a pain to raise money from VCs and how VCs take ages. But, you know, when you're dealing with pension funds, banks, sovereign wealth funds, government pools of capital, you know, sometimes even family offices, although usually a little bit quicker, it literally takes years to raise money. So that's the first thing that really surprised me. But the second thing was that when I started to look at the composition of the funding in Europe compared to the US, I realized that there was some huge gaps. So if you look in the US, 
Um, and you know these numbers are, are rough, but I've seen some reports that kind of would, would say that they're right. You know, roughly uh, about somewhere between 15 and 20% of the capital comes from university endowments. And they're a huge part of what invests in venture capital in, in the US. You know, they don't really exist in Europe. There are a number of universities that have endowments, but they're usually endowments that are largely real estate based and not liquid capital based. So they actually have very little capital to invest. So again, there, there are probably less than a handful in Europe that are thinking about investing in VCs. And that's that's suddenly, you know, 15 to 20% of the capital that's available for VCs in Europe suddenly doesn't exist in Europe, right? Then you look at like pension funds. And so pension funds account for another about 20% of the venture capital pool of capital in the US. And pension funds, by their very nature, rightfully so, they are very risk-averse investors, right? They're managing people's pensions. They need to take risk. And venture capital is usually one of their riskiest asset classes. And so they'll usually only be putting between 1% and 2% of their entire portfolio into venture capital. And Pension funds are also normally enormous. And so they can't write a 5 million check most of the time. They need to be writing usually minimum 20 million checks into funds. And the problem is attached to that is that they also don't want to be more than 10% of your fund a lot of the time. And so that effectively means if you kind of do the reverse maths on that, you need to be raising a 200 million fund. And that's fine if you're like a series B fund or a growth fund. But if you're a, a pre-seed or a seed focused fund in Europe, then that suddenly means that pension funds are almost not a path for you to raise capital for. And then, so that's, that now we're at a close to, you know, 40% of the capital that's available for VCs in the US is suddenly like not really available for seed managers in Europe. And then, okay, then you look at like family offices and you think, okay, so family offices are a huge part of venture capital in, in the US. They're also a big part of venture capital in Europe, but most family offices you meet in the US are two degrees away from where the money is made. So that means that if I'm meeting you, David and Andreas, and you guys are a family office, it usually means you made the money, your parents made the money, or your grandparents made the money in the US. And what that basically means is that you grew up hearing from your grandparents about what it was like to build something, create something, build wealth, create wealth. And so you still are very conscious about building and creating wealth. In Europe, most family offices that I meet are seven to 10 degrees away from where the money is made. And the problem is, is that their generations don't remember what it was like to build anything. And so most of them, of course, there are exceptions to this, and these are generalizations, but most of the family offices that are like that, they tend to have a very different investment strategy. Unlike in the US, where it's about a capital creation investment strategy, in Europe, it's a very much family offices have a capital preservation strategy, where they're focused on making sure that the amount of money they have stays the same for them and their kids and their kids' kids. And so again, that rules out a lot of the bigger family offices in Europe for venture capital. So suddenly, the three of the biggest investors in venture capital in the US, the places that if I'm a VC in the US and I'm trying to raise a fund that I'm going to go to, those don't exist in the same way as Europe. And a lot of people critique people like EIF as being very bureaucratic and slow at times. But the reality is that EIF has really driven and saved a lot of the European ecosystem because they, they uh, I, I mean, this was a really old article, but the only estimate I've ever seen was that the economists thought that 40% of venture capital funding in Europe came from governments. And probably about half of that was from EIF, I think. And so realistically, you know, governments have stepped in. Now, what comes with that is often restrictions on geographic investing and other things. But, you know, if it hadn't been for some of those government capital, uh, whether it's like an EIF or, or different individual governments investing, you know, I think the European ecosystem would not have been able to scale as fast as it has over the last five to 10 years. And, you know, people might critique it but I am incredibly grateful for the whole European ecosystem that that capital has been available. Because if you look at the top 100 managers in Europe, you know, I guarantee that at least, I would say over 95% of them at some point took money from the governments in Europe. And that probably was right at the beginning as well when they were just raising their fund. Sorry, it's probably a very long-winded answer, but there is a big difference. I think the good news for people who are raising managers now is that historically, Europe did not have strong venture returns. And that is definitely clearly changing. There are plenty of managers across Europe now who are showing returns across multiple funds. And so once we start to show 
show better data in Europe, that will change these large institutional investors' focus and they'll want to get into that asset class. And so I think that that's the positive is that this government capital has allowed a lot of these funds to start prove that they can show good returns. And then we're going to start seeing more institutional capital come in. And we're definitely already starting to see some of that compared to what it was when we started kind of eight years ago. You kind of just guided us through your pains of realizing the differences between US and the European ecosystems. So the investing ecosystems, so the LP base. So I'd like to ask from a policy perspective in Europe, what do you see as the future? How can we then counteract these limitations of the European region? Yeah, well, I think, look, realistically, while I said pension funds are more hesitant to invest in Europe, there are tons of pension funds and with tons of capital. And so if they can start to see the returns coming from the European ecosystem, they will start to move more of their capital towards venture, especially in this super low interest economy. They need to show returns and they need to probably take more risk if they want those returns now because interest rates are so low. And so venture capital is going to be one of those asset classes that will benefit from that. I think, again, family offices that have a capital preservation strategy, once they see that the VC ecosystem is performing, if they want to do more risk averse, they can invest in some of the new fund of funds that are investing in VCs, right? And that's a much more risk averse way where you, your investment will be spread across multiple VC firms. And then those fund of funds can then take more risk across their investments in the VC funds. So I think we are seeing changes. We're also seeing a lot more international capital. So you know, when I spoke to a lot of the VCs when we were starting, almost all of them had capital from their own country, mostly, and some from other parts of Europe, maybe. But now we're seeing a lot of LPs come in from Asia, from the US, looking to get access to the European ecosystem. So I think for managers starting now, it is definitely a much better place than it was eight years ago to try and raise it. The difference, though, is that there's a lot more fun. So it's a more competitive environment to try and build your brand and to build your business. But, uh, but it is an easier ecosystem. And, you know, the famous phrase, standing on the shoulders of giants. Frontline was able to raise our fund because other funds in Europe had proven that venture capital at least can exist in Europe, right? And then, you know, hopefully funds like Frontline and others who started around the same time as us can show good enough returns so that new managers starting now won't have to prove that you need to be an outlier to show good returns in Europe, that actually, you know, it is possible to generate good returns across different ecosystems in Europe. Coming back to my original scripted question, I was actually thinking of our first guest, Mark Lorman from Vesalius, and it's a bit to your point of family offices. He was sharing with us, you know, that um, he ran across very different kinds of LPs doing fundraising. Some are in it just for the returns, while others are actually motivated and excited by the investment thesis. So Mark actually shared a story of an entrepreneur from a different sector, not life sciences, but that as a former entrepreneur got excited. And I'm curious to know what has been your experience on this front and how do you make the most out of your LPs, meaning ensuring they are active players who contribute to the fund? I'd say that there's different ways that a VC can add value. So, you know, we have a family office. They're a self-made billionaire. They built a huge company in Europe. They are enormously connected and have on many occasions helped our portfolio get access to the industry that they've built uh, in their company. And we also have a, a large corporate who, you know, has been able to support it as a customer. So they become a customer of at least five or six of our companies now. And then, uh, you know, on the flip side, we also have two pension funds as investors. And in their case, you know, they're less strategic in their value add, but they're just really professional in how they require us to report, how they require us to fundraise from them. You know, we understand the expectations about when we need to fundraise, the process we need to do. And that's great from our side. That's a huge value add to us as a fund to know that they can write big checks, they're reliable, they're going to be there for future funds, assuming we can perform, and that we know the process to raise capital. You know, family office often you know, they, they make their decisions on the day sometimes. And so you might not know if they're going to be in the next fund until you wait, you get there and you ask them, whereas with the pension funds and stuff like that. So there are different ways I think that LPs can add value. It's not all about adding value to the portfolio. Sometimes they can add value to just 
the structure and the reliability of your fundraising. He is absolutely right in his answer that different LPs are looking for different things. Not all of them are just looking for pure returns. Some are looking for you to encourage an ecosystem, in a, whether it might be in multiple geographies or a specific country. Some are looking for you to share information about what you're seeing in certain sectors. So like, you know, the corporate that is an investor in us is a large financial services firm. They want us to make sure that we keep them updated about what's happening in the financial services sector as far as the trends that we're seeing. So there are different things that LPs want. At the heart of it, nobody invests unless they think they're going to get some level of return. And then I think it's the level of return expectation can vary across different types of investors. And I think if you're trying to raise a fund, you should try and have a balance across the different investors that you have because times will change markets can change and having different types of investors, whether it's, you know, one might be a bank or a pension fund or a family office, having a spread of different investors gives you some level of kind of, I guess, diversification against something that might pull certain categories out for future funds. William, now I uh, really want to shift focus from the LP side to the VC side. And I want to kick us off with the statement you've made in a former chat of ours, which really cracked me up. And that's when you, uh, uh, and I have to say quite bluntly said, Let's face it, many VCs go into VC to retire. It's a pretty bold statement. David and I have been talking about it afterwards and have agreed that at least partially, we have definitely seen that in the sense that we often see VCs not being very interested in the firm building part of the business. Would you take us through your thinking and why you said what you said? First of all, very glad to always be able to crack you up, Andreas. That's a positive. You know, when we started Frontline, I was 27. And so I was probably on the complete opposite end of the spectrum. I think I was the young, I'm pretty sure, I, at least I haven't heard of it since there's been younger, but at the time, I think I was the youngest partner of a VC fund in Europe. And so I was on the complete other stark end of that, where so many of the other partners I was meeting were people who had pretty much finished their careers and planned to do a fund or two before they you know, fully stopped working. And you know, the reason why I think a lot of people go into venture capital, we talked about it on the last podcast, there is an enormous amount of ego boosting and self-actualization. Realistically, when you become a VC, You get to constantly meet all these people who are lifting you up mentally and trying to enthuse you every day on their ideas. On the other side, it's incredibly intellectually stimulating. You know, I mean, in the last probably month and a half, I've seen everything from, you know, back-end software to satellites to different modes of the future of e-commerce to, you know, drones and IoT and blockchain-based companies. It's, it's incredibly stimulating to constantly be meeting all these new ideas and hearing about them and learning about them. And so even last night, I saw a friend was sharing a company that is making a lab-grown foie gras, right? Now, like, probably not something for me, but realistically, you know, again, it's just, it's super interesting to learn about all these new technologies. And so if you've been working in a career for a long time, it's actually, you know, when you think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, VC really dings the top of that pyramid. And so that's why I think a lot of people go into VC to retire because you can give smaller amounts of time. You can work nine to five if you want. Again, I, I want to build a company, so I want to work, I work a lot more than that. But you can work nine to five. It's full of people who want to meet with you and boost your ego. And it's very intellectually stimulating. So that's why I think a lot of people go into it to retire. I think the industry has gotten a lot better. You know, when we started, it felt like almost all VCs were like that. But now, you know, there have been a lot of great new managers that have started particularly at the early stages across Europe. So I think that that used to feel like it applied to 85% of VCs partners that I met. I think now it probably applies to maybe 30 to 40% of the partners that I meet. But it is still a, a big part of the number of partners that I meet that 
they're going into VC to semi-retire. But I see that as an advantage for Frontline because I know that I and Will and Shay, we didn't do that, you know, and, and realistically, you know, Shay has, Shay set up Arlen's very first venture capital fund back in like 1992 called Delta Partners with another few partners. Like realistically, he loves building venture capital and, you know, Will and I, we're both very young and we want to build something big. And so to us, the fact that a lot of other VCs are going into VC to retire is great because it means that we can innovate, we can do different things, and and then they can try and follow that or copy it or can keep doing what they're doing and we'll have an advantage. So I see it as a good thing. Couldn't agree more. <laughs> to the point of firm building, Liam, if I understand correctly, you believe VCs should be more rigorous in their use of data. And we know that you're quite strategic in how you use data to find deals. Could you elaborate a bit on this and explain why your approach is different from other VCs? And forgive me for being a bit provocative here because, you know, they all will obviously say they use data. So my question is really, why are you different? You know, how are you using data that no one else is actually using? I was part of a thing called the Kaufman Fellows. So any of the VCs that are listening, it's, maybe this is about to describe, but it's kind of like a part-time MBA for, but that's so, super focused on venture capital. Uh, highly recommended for people who are thinking about it. But when I was part of it, we had all these really great top name, big US VCs coming in. And so often they would talk about how you know, they base their decisions on their gut. You know, they can look at data, but it's their gut. And they'd so often say that, and I feel like often calling semi-bullshit on that because like realistically in venture capital, we have a luxury where there is information arbitrage and time arbitrage if you get to a deal early. And I think a lot of them live on that, not that their gut instinct is right. And this has been proven in most other investment categories where data has become more open and transparent, that gut is the wrong investment strategy and algorithmic trading is the right investment strategy over a consistent period of time. And so I think that we should try and use much more data. Now, Later stage investors already do use a lot of data, right? Growth stage investors, because they have a lot of data to access and to be in front of. But where we invest, as I mentioned, 80% of our investments are pre-revenue. And so because 80% of our investments are pre-revenue, that means there's usually no traction in 80% of the companies we invest in. So I think the challenge we had was what data do we use? So what we do is we use data to try and find companies. I would say still a lot of our decision is how we think about the people. And there is unfortunately still a large element of our opinion and gut that goes into that. But when it comes to data for finding companies, you know, we are constantly looking for new ways to find data. There's a number of different things we track. An example is, you know, we are scanning tens of thousands of LinkedIn profiles on a weekly basis to see who is changing their titles to co-founder, founder, et cetera. And we will get alerts. We have a system that gets alerts for that. And we'll check to make sure, you know, are these people coming from interesting companies, starting new companies? We should be aware and figure out what they're doing. You know, there's a company we just invested in, uh, we're just about to invest in, should I say, so I probably can't say the name of the company. We got aware of that company because we saw that their number of GitHub stars was rising really fast. And, um, you know, they hadn't even registered a company properly yet. So, you know, there are always going to be ways that we can try and spot data. I think in consumer companies, there's lots of ways. For B2B, where we target, we're trying to find new ways. But there's some. But again, I believe that data is an advantage. Most people don't use it. So if you're a VC in Europe, if you're wanting to set up a new fund in Europe, you should be trying to think about what are the ways you can use data to your advantage. Because again, a lot of the people just don't do that. And so it gives you an edge over other VCs. Very interesting, William. I'm very interested in knowing more about how VC firms try and develop their internationalization of the firm. How do they make sure that they get deals from outside of their own geography. Many, of course, employ scout programs, some more sophisticated than others. What is your take on this and how do you do it yourself? So when we started Frontline, we were very much seen as you know the Irish VC, three Irish people. Even though I wasn't based in Ireland, it was three Irish people starting Frontline. And so it took a long time to get people to realize, hey, we can invest across Europe. We don't have to just invest in Ireland. So there were a number of different ways. I think the first thing that we needed to do is to try and figure out, again, going back to the last question around data, we needed to figure out 
what were we seeing versus what was happening, right? And so we looked at all the deals that were being announced in different geographies around Europe, and then we were looking at what are we seeing? And so we decided we would first try and target the UK. And what we realized was that uh, after three years of Frontline, we were seeing about 20% of the deals that were being announced in the UK, which to us was like nowhere near where we wanted to be. You know, in Ireland, we, we see about 95% of the deals that get announced. So in the UK, when we first started measuring this about five years ago, we were seeing about 20% of the deals. And so we specifically looked at, okay, well, what are the deals that we're missing? And we noticed straight away that a number of them were ones that were spinning out of universities. So we started building relationships with the angels who focused on those different universities, on the different university spin-out offices or innovation offices to make sure that we hear more about what's coming out of there. We also saw that certain funds were ones where we just weren't seeing any of the deals that they were doing. And so we thought, okay, we need to build better relationships with those funds so that they might share stuff. So we started sharing stuff with them. They started sharing stuff with us. And we've now got one of the funds in particular, I won't mention specifically, but we now have three deals with that fund from that strategy. And so I think that that's the first thing is that, again, going back to using data, by using data, we were able to see actually what are we seeing? Where are our gaps? And then that allowed us to develop strategies to fill those gaps. Different gaps require different strategies. You mentioned a few of them, like scout funds is a potential strategy, doing content. So, you know, you guys, I would hope, have a great audience in Europe, and that will help us, you know, make sure we see more things in Europe. You know, I would say also doing deals in certain ecosystems helps a lot. So we actually see quite a lot from the Portuguese ecosystem, because one of our early investments was a company called uh, James, or it used to be called Crowd Process, and, and they were well known in the ecosystem. Their team and the founders often sent us great deals from there. I was often going to the ecosystem system. And, you know, that kind of is a positive circular thing as well. But uh, without listing, there's, you know, there's probably about 10 to 20 different strategies. Maybe I should write some sort of blog post on it. But there's probably about 10 to 20 different strategies that we use to fill those gaps when we see that there are gaps. And we're constantly doing that. I'd say where we are now is we see about 95% of what happens in Ireland. We see about 75% of the deals that are announced in the UK that are, this is for B2B below series A deals. You know, when it comes to the rest of Europe, we're still only seeing about 25 to 30% of the deals that are announced. And you know, we want to try and get that higher, closer to kind of 50 to 60% across whole Europe over the next few years. And that's at least our goal. And again, this kind of goes back to company building. You know, it would be super easy for us to say like, look, we see 95% of what's in Ireland and 75% of the UK. We'll just do those deals. But our ambition in Frontline is to build a global firm. We want to make sure that we're seeing all of the best deals because we very strongly believe great companies can come from anywhere, whether that's Dublin, Copenhagen, Lisbon, Paris, Berlin, London, wherever that is. And we want to make sure that we at least have the opportunity to meet those founders and potentially invest them. If we don't invest in those great founders, then that's on us for making the wrong decision. But if we don't even see the founders and get a chance to invest in them, well, then that's just a wasted opportunity for us. Yeah, that's, uh, I love that. And uh, you just said something that might just get very close to what I'm about to ask, because we want to round off our interview now with our final section. And since we've already done the quick fire with you, you want to do what we call a take a stand round. This is where we throw two I like opposing, <laughs> thanks, uh, we'll throw two opposing views to you and ask you to take a stand. And William, as always, please be as opinionated as you can. That won't be hard for me, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. So the first topic, it's about developing your brand in VC. There are two schools, so to speak, those who swear to personal VC and those who swear to the firm brand. William, who's wrong and who's right? I very strongly believe, since you want me to take a stance, I am not sitting on the fence. I am like 20 feet right on one side of the fence. I have a very strong view that firm is the right strategy. Again, it probably goes down to, you know, building a firm versus retiring to be a VC. Realistically, if I want Frontline to be a really global brand, I don't want me to have a huge brand. I don't want Will or Shay to have huge brands. I want Frontline to be the strong brand because then we can not only have deals coming at the whole firm, but also we can also build talent in the firm. And, you know, I remember 
again, I realize I, this is the second time I'm quoting a random VC dinner. Your listeners are going to be thinking just VCs will always just have dinner with each other. But um, I was at a dinner and we were having this debate and there was two people who were like actively arguing that it should be personal brand first, right? And then I said, do you agree that Sequoia is one of the best firms in the world? And they both said yes. And I said, name one of the general partners. And neither of them could. Now, look, I can name some of them because we have a relationship with them. But actually, if, I think if you ask a table of entrepreneurs, they would often say, you know, they'll throw out like, you know, Benchmark, Lightspeed, Sequoia, they're, they're a bunch of great US firms, right? And then you ask them to name a partner. And a lot of the greatest firms don't, right? Now, look, then you ask them the flip side and you say, do you know who Mark Suster is? Do you know who Brad Feld is? Do you know who, you know, one of these big name VCs, right? And they will all say, yeah, of course, huge VC. I'm like, well, what firm do they work for? And then a lot of the time they don't know. And so to me, I'm a huge believer of firm brand over personal brand because I want to build longevity into frontline. And I think that if you want to build a VC that's around you and that's all about you and that ends when you, you know, decide to stop being a VC, then fine, build it around your personal brand. But if you want to build a VC that has longevity, then, you know, you need to focus on the firm. And, and I just, I, 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 hence why, you know, for me, I'm, that is not on the fence. I'm very strongly over on one side. Yeah. And I'm sure you're going to be on my follow-up question because it's very closely linked. And that's, of course, some VCs believe that partners have to be hired in. You can't build people up from associate or another inferior position. What's your take on this? Who's wrong and who's right? I just, uh, again, I have very strong opinion. I, I definitely think you can build partners from the ground up. You know, realistically, I don't think VC is an incredibly hard job to do. I think that experience helps, right? So if you've built a company, that absolutely helps in being able to add value. You know, but in particular, the thing it adds most value for is around the empathy that you have towards the founders and understanding what they're going through. Realistically, we very strongly believe that you can build that talent internally. We plan to do it, you know, effectively. When I started when I was 27, with Will and Shay, although my title was partner, I was only a few years out of college and I had the luxury of having people who treated me like an equal, but also were mentors. And I learned an enormous amount from them to be able to be a VC. So to me, I think I'm a good VC. And so I believe that you can build up VCs. And I've seen many successful VC firms in Europe and the US build people from very junior levels right up to general partner level. So I strongly believe that. And I I have some good friends who are VCs who believe the opposite and I have often debates and I've never been convinced by them that they're showing me any reason why I should switch that view. Have you, uh, just, uh, just to probe, uh, have you ever felt that at some point in that discussion, they really wanted to give in and say, yeah, okay, so I'm really doing it for my ego and that's why I think that this should personal brand? No, I think, I, I think, I think it's, it's less about ego, at least the one that I've debated the most with this, and I won't name the person, but but they're a great European seed general partner. He has definitely questioned aspects about it, but they don't come at it. For, he definitely has like very low ego. So it's definitely not that. It's very much more around a general partnership requires you to be bringing roughly like certain things to it, right? And so there is a belief around everyone should be rewarded equally at the partnership level and everyone should be inputting the same amount. And that also means contributing the same amount to the partnership because we have to pay into the fund and so forth. And so some people feel that it creates bad dynamics in a partnership where one person has way more than other people. You know, and I don't necessarily have that view. I have the view that you can have a partnership where there are different levels of reward and different levels of ownership, as long as people are bought into the, the kind of the mission of the partnership. And also that the partnership is structured so that as people retire or move on, that there is space made for the people 
who are moving up in it. But a lot of people believe a partnership should always be an equal partnership. And that's more of like a philosophical view on how a partnership should be run, I think, where I differ to that person in this case. William, I'm going to sidetrack this again and, and add the third question to the take a stand section. And it connects to your point about empathy. Unfortunately, I cannot name this VC because this wasn't an interview nor a public forum, but someone I respect in the early stage, Deep Tech Southern European Fund, is a very strong believer that as a VC, your customer is the LP. And you, in the first part of this interview, you boldly stated our customer is the entrepreneur. And so... Who's right and who's wrong? Yeah, we, we look, the, I think this is something we've debated heavily in Frontline and we came to the conclusion yeah, many years ago that we want to design our offering for our entrepreneurs. And if we design the right offering for the entrepreneurs, the best entrepreneurs will come to us and we'll be able to show great returns on top of those best entrepreneurs. And those great returns will then attract LPs, investors to us. So we felt that if you look at it, we don't think it's a chicken and egg scenario, which one came first. We think that no, you need to be able to attract the best entrepreneurs to attract the top investors. Now, while you need money before you can invest in them, the reality is that I think most LPs that invest in a first fund, they don't have any track record to look at per se. And so they're really believing in that you can build something that can create that track record and that those returns. And so my belief is you know, that you should be building a product for the entrepreneurs. I think that view, and again, I don't know who you're speaking about, but that view is a much easier view to have in a European ecosystem where there isn't enough LP capital and there's way too many entrepreneurs and not enough VCs. And so back in 2012, that view was probably correct if you wanted to be successful in venture capital. But now the last four or five deals we've done in Frontline or looked at have had five to six term sheets. It's not good enough just being the same as the other offers of capital. So you need to develop a product offering that those entrepreneurs will want. And then on the opposite side, as I mentioned earlier, there is more and more LP capital coming into venture capital in Europe. And so, you know, in the newer way of looking at things, I think that you have to be focused on the entrepreneur versus the LP. You still have to obviously deliver what you promised the LP, but Frontline is definitely driven by our product offerings for entrepreneurs. William, I uh, think that we have to uh, round our chat off as we're approaching every deadline that you can uh, possibly approach. So William, thanks a million for our chats. It's been a great to chat with you. And I really want to thank you so much for taking the time to do a, a two-part episode with us. No, and thank you very much, guys. I appreciate you you, you re realizing very quickly on our prep call that I talk a lot. So you're probably going to have to stretch it to two calls. Very much appreciate it. And I hope it's useful for your listeners and thank everybody for listening in. Thanks, William. Thanks a million. That was the end of our second and last segment with William. Today, we focused on firm building. If you haven't done it yet, don't forget to check out our previous episode with William about frontline investment theses and how they support globally ambitious B2B companies on both sides of the Atlantic. We had a great time talking with William McKillen, founding partner of Frontline Ventures. Find William on LinkedIn if you would like to see more from him. Thank you for listening to this episode of the European VC, the go-to place for insights into the European VC industry. If you would like to hear more from us, visit theeuropeanvc.com. If you would like to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, please do reach out to us at LinkedIn or whichever medium fits you best. We are always there for you.